This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair utilizes a molecule called hypochlorous acid. When applied to the skin, the molecule works by mimicking the natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We use active skin repair all the time in our household. We call it the magic spray. We use it for so many things, but it came in hot recently when Sage fell and busted open his lip and we had our first trip to urgent care for stitches. And now with all the bumps and scrapes that come with summertime, it is very much on the scene. In fact, Mila, my five-month-old, recently got a little cut on her finger and Sage noticed it first and he was like, Mama, I'll go grab the magic spray. He was so jazzed to be able to do it and help her and be a part of it. It's become a staple in our household. You can visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's code VILLAGE for 20% off your order at activeskinrepair.com. Welcome to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 42. Today I have a gal on who I have so much respect for and whom I'm so grateful I found over on Instagram. I love our Instagram community. I love connecting with people. I've had people share deep, amazing, heartfelt, traumatic stories with me in the comments, in DMs, and I love having a space where folks can come and open up and feel safe and in community, and I had the pleasure of connecting with Natalie Norton over on Instagram and have followed along a little bit of her journey Natalie has experienced a lot of trauma in this life, and she, in the face of it, is absolutely amazing. Her emotional intelligence is very high, and I have such respect for how she navigates challenge. And I wanted to learn from her how she got there and kind of what these things look like behind those little squares. She was open and delightful to talk with. I could have nerded out on emotional intelligence all day with her. I want to clarify one thing that we discussed that as I thought more about it, I want to make sure that this point is clear. At one point, I say in this episode that sometimes we're not ready to process. Natalie disagreed with this point, and I totally respect that. I was thinking along the lines of, and didn't do a good job of saying this in the episode, so I want to kind of put this out there now, that for me, there are times where things are too overwhelming, and because unfortunately we don't get like a pause button we get to hit on life, where we pause and process and then come back to life, there are times where I don't have the time and space to process it. So I tap into ways to cope, not in an effort to process the emotion, but to get through and kind of survive until I'm in a place where I can process the emotion. Sometimes this is the fact that there are kids around and you don't get to hit pause and go process and go through your whole emotion processing and then come back and take care of kids. Sometimes there are things we have to do as parents, teachers, and caregivers 
where we don't get to to pause and process. For me, I was thinking also of like the Kavanaugh hearings and, and because it was ongoing, it wasn't like one day or two days or three days where the world cares about sexual assault for a little bit and it's all over my news feed, but then I know it'll just go away. Like the Kavanaugh hearings, every single day my feed was just filled with stuff that was triggering and every place that I went there was discussion about it and it was almost like you couldn't escape it so at the beginning I worked really hard to like process and ultimately what I ended up doing was just practicing a lot of self-care and giving myself grace not to have to be perfect that it's okay if I'm not a perfect human in those times and I'm doing the best I can to take care of myself so that I'm not buried in it But then I think it is important to take the time to tap into coping strategies and and maintain that self-awareness, knowing, okay, I'm triggered and this is what's triggering it. And now what do I do with it once I have the space to do that? So I just wanted to clarify that because I a thousand percent agree with Natalie that there isn't like a kind of coping around it. You either process it or you don't. It either, you've either fully processed this emotion or it's living inside of you. So I, I agree with her and I just wanted to clarify what I was referring to there. Would you do me a favor? If you are tuning in, this podcast is totally free and we absolutely love putting free content out there for you. It literally fills my heart. And The best way to say thank you, well, to be completely honest, there are two ways you can say thank you. One is to subscribe on iTunes and scroll down and leave a review. This just helps our podcast show up to more people who are looking on iTunes for something along those lines. And the second thing you can do is to just screenshot where you're tuning in and then share it. Share it on Facebook, share it in an Instagram story, share it in an Instagram post. And let me tag me at seed.and.so, S-E-W, and let me know where you're tuning in from. Let me hear from you. I want to hear your thoughts and feedback here. Uh, You can always come over to Instagram at seed.and.so and let me know how you feel about this episode. We also have a Facebook group that y'all are invited to. The only stipulation is that you want to raise emotionally intelligent humans. It's seed and so colon voices of your village, uh, or facebook.com slash group slash seed and so. And that Facebook group has a whole bunch of experts who are volunteering their time, OTs, SLPs, myself, sleep consultants, uh, PTs, Kairos, a whole bunch of pediatric experts in the field of early childhood who are volunteering their time to answer questions that parents, teachers, and caregivers have. These are all people that I have vetted and that I know are going to bring quality information to you. So if you're looking for like a parenting group or a place to come and ask questions about your tiny humans, and you don't just want like Sally down the street whose kids maybe aren't even emotionally intelligent at this point, answering your question on Facebook, come join our group. We have a whole team of experts who are there along with parents who are chiming in to support you. And then we collaborate to make sure that we're putting out information that is conducive to raising children with emotional intelligence. So come on over. All right. This is a long intro. Sorry, guys. Let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. 
We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome to Voices of Your Village. Today I am here with Natalie Norton. I found her over on Instagram and just have not stopped stalking her since. She's just this amazing, inspiring woman and I feel so grateful to get to hang out with her today. Hey Natalie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. It's such a special treat. Can you share with us just a little bit about who you are and kind of what led you to today? Yes, absolutely. We have had a tremendous amount of trauma in our family and in our household. And um, it's it's hard, I'll be honest, it's hard to give a bite size or a sound bite type version of our story because of that. Um, But I'm going to plow through these things really quickly just because they do inform where I am now. So I started out as a professional photographer and this was back in 2006. And right around that time, my brother passed away. And that kind of unrolled or began this unrolling of a lot of, um, of big challenges in our, in our family and in our lives. My, so my brother passed away. And then a couple years later, we lost our son, who was named after my brother. And a couple years after that, we became um, foster to adopt parents of twins and their seven-year-old sister. And they were in our home for two years. Um, the whole time, the case plan was adoption. And then right before the adoption finalized, they were reunified with their biological mother. And we have not seen them or heard anything about them um, since. Shortly thereafter, I suffered a TIA. That's a transient ischemic attack or a mini stroke. Um, and lost the ability to communicate. I, I knew what things were. I had the cognitive um, connection there, but I didn't have language for anything. And that took some time to recover from and maybe almost a solid two years from beginning to end until I felt a full return of my mental faculties um, and my use of language. And I still stutter from time to time. So you guys can cut me a little slack if that happens today. Um, And then last year, most recently, um, my 11 or then 10 year old son was crossing the street or maybe he was then 11, no, 10, 11. I don't know. My son <laughs> was crossing the street and um, he was struck by a distracted driver and hospitalized for um, a month. Most of that time spent in the intensive care unit. We almost lost him on several occasions after that accident. And he is home now and healthy. He does have some facial reconstruction that has been done and some that may continue to be done in the future but we are just so thankful that he is alive. And all of that was happening in conjunction with all the other things that happen in people's lives, the normal things, financial struggle, and the complexities of being in a marriage and having children. And my husband and I wrote a book together. I was running my photography business and you have to do normal things like go to Costco and be a part of the PTA. And it doesn't, just because there's trauma involved in your life doesn't mean that all the other things just go away. And so it just, it was very complex just to wrap it up in the best way I know how, um, I had been a photographer for about a decade and I just started having this real clarity 
that while I was a talented photographer, my gift was different than that, that I was talented at that because I had a gift of human connection and because I had a gift of a high level of emotional intelligence and because I had a gift of um, being able to connect with people in profound, profound ways. And that that informed my capacity to pull emotion out of people and to create beautiful portraiture. And I started getting more and more requests from people to do things like speak at events that were completely unrelated to photography. Or um, I got a lot of requests for life coaching, which was something that I didn't even know existed when these requests started rolling in. And little by little, I started transitioning and realizing that um, while photography had been a great way for me to um, bless the world for, for a period of time, that it was now time for me to transition and do that kind of work in a different arena. And so now I do a lot of speaking, a lot of coaching. I'll be launching a podcast this coming January. And um, we've got a book coming out, both my husband and myself, separate books coming out in the next, in the next bit. And here we are. It's amazing. I, when I first found you and then even hearing you retell your story the whole time, I'm like, but how, like, how are you, how are you here? And I think had a number of us encountered any one of those things, it could be insurmountable for a number of folks. And yet here you are like trauma and tragedy after another and not just surviving the days, but, but thriving. And that's what I really want to dive into uh, you and I both share love of emotional intelligence, and yours is remarkably high. And I, I think that's the key to your success here. But I want to find out like how you developed your emotional intelligence, and kind of where did that start for you? Yeah, um, it's funny. I my first thought is that you really should be interviewing my mom <laughs> <laughs> because maybe she is um, she is. The, the reason for all of this. Um, she is really phenomenal. And she was raised by um, wonderful parents who did their best. And that said, her father was an alcoholic. And because of that, the environment was far less than ideal in very many ways. And um, both of her brothers, she was, she was raised in a family of three, two brothers and herself. Both of her brothers ended up becoming alcoholics as well. And um, my mom, just something in her, had the capacity at quite a young age to recognize those patterns and to make very conscious decisions to break those patterns in her own life. And because of that, um, she was very committed to raising her children with a high level of self-awareness. And um, I mean, I remember being introduced to meditation in the form of visualization when I was as young as two or, th or probably three or four years old. Sure. And um, the conversations that we had in our home and the books that we read and the books that we had available to us, all of that was my mom's very conscious effort to raise children who had the capacity to um, achieve a level of self-realization. And I think that that's work that I have just continued because of patterns that were laid in my early, early childhood. And um, in addition to that, my wonderful father was one of the founding partners of a company called um, the Covey Leadership Center. Um, Stephen Covey wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And my father worked closely with him in um, the writing and publication and subsequent marketing of that book. And so coupled, couple my mom's desire for us to be emotionally intelligent, um, competent children with lots of character and the capacity to really thrive emotionally in the world with the access I had to so much 
um, information because of the industry my dad was in, working with all these different thought leaders in the 90s and the 80s and 90s, I think that um, it was kind of the perfect storm as it relates to me then becoming who I now am. I do think that a level of who I am came with me. I think that I just have a tendency or a propensity towards self-awareness and towards a higher level of emotional intelligence than others. But I don't believe that, that, that it stopped there. I think that was very much seen in me and fostered from a very young age. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would also love to interview your mom. Uh, <laughs> well, I think that, so emotional intelligence is three things, right? It starts with self-awareness and then we have uh, empathy and social awareness. And I think you do such an amazing job at being a leader and showing that we can't do the other two. We can't do empathy and social awareness until we've checked ourselves first, right? That like yeah. that always has to come first. And I see that in you as a person and as a parent and a partner through social media. And I think it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. So one, one thing that I think we can get in a habit of and that I'd like to dive into is this idea of like something happened to me. Right, whether yes, yeah. that right, thank you. Uh, whether it any one of the dramas, in fact, I so and I, I've I've very openly shared this on the, both the podcast and Instagram that I was raped as a child, and for me, the point of sharing it isn't a oh this happened to me and I want sympathy. The point is that we all experience trauma and we get to decide afterward how we're going to respond. Yes. And so what do you think as you've navigated these traumas? I think that's an easy thing to say on this side or when you're not standing in the face of trauma, but how has that been for you as you've navigated trauma or tragedy after another? Well, a few things come to mind. And so I'm like sitting here taking notes because I want to loop back because there's so many things you've, you've laid such a great foundation for so many great conversations. The first I'll say is trauma it's perhaps the great human equalizer, right? We will all experience trauma in varying degrees. And I hesitate even to say in varying degrees because pain is pain is pain. And I think about, um, there's two things I'd like to share. And I, I always loop back to this book because I think that in my adulthood, this was where my great awakening began. Um, I read, when I was in college, I read the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And it is a phenomenal read. And if you haven't read it already, you must. Viktor Frankl was a psychotherapist and he was also a concentration camp survivor. And when he was in Auschwitz, he sort of turned his experience there into a study in human capacity to survive because he had access to perhaps the most tormenting and trauma-ridden case study that he could have possibly had. And yet here it was unfolding right before him, right? He was watching all of this happen and he was able to um, draw some really powerful conclusions from his time there. And the conclusion that he drew most significantly was that in order for a person to survive, they needed a sense of meaning and that it didn't matter if you came into the camp as the most frail and scrawny person of all, if you had a sense of meaning, maybe it was a loved one on the outside that you might, you may be able to see again. Maybe it was a belief in God, whatever it was that that meaning increased your propensity for survival substantially. 
Whereas people who may come into the camp, maybe the strongest in physical terms, and maybe even had a high level of mental toughness. If when they got into the camp, they didn't have any sense of meaning, they were much more likely not to survive that, that experience. And, um, that for me was a life-changing read. And one of the things in that book that he talks about is pain. And to loop back to that idea that pain is pain is pain and that trauma is perhaps the great human equalizer. Um, he talks about in that book, the comparison of your pain to a gas. And he talks about how gas expands to fill the amount of space available to it. And so we could take gas and we could put it in a very small container and it would expand to fill the capacity of that container. Even if the container was very small, we could take that same gas and release it into a stadium and it would expand to fill the capacity available to it. And so I think that we have to be really careful when talking about pain, not to make it hierarchical, where this is more than this and this is less than this, and just instead recognize that pain is pain. And your pain and trauma is so real and I'm so sorry that that horrible thing happened to you. And to someone listening who says, well, what, what excuse do I have? I've never been raped. I've never lost a child or I've never, but the reality is you do have trauma and you do have pain and you do also have the capacity to find meaning in your life and the capacity to take personal responsibility and to stand up and to do what you need to do, despite the trauma that you have experienced. And then looping back even further to what you were saying about that self-awareness um, that is foundational in all of this work that we do. Um, there is perhaps no greater gift we can give ourselves or our children or the world than looking at ourselves and saying, what is my role in this? Um, how do I show up in this situation? Where Taking on everything as though we are the only the only source of any kind of relief from what it is that we're suffering or from what's going on in the world around us, taking complete personal responsibility for all things. And that's a really hard thing for a lot of us because we're like, well, wait, I'm not going to take personal responsibility for the fact that, that this happened, but what else do you have control over? Truly, other than yourself, you have control over nothing but your choices and your response to the things in your life. And so, um, I think that that starting there and letting that be the the springboard from which everything else moves forward um, is paramount. That was, that was that was amazing and intense and so much that came together. I have not read that book, but I just wrote it down and we will Good. absolutely <laughs> link it in this blog post because I need to read it. I once sat in therapy and had a therapist ask me, how so the the rate of suicide skyrockets for physical abuse survivors so um it's like 13 times higher than if you haven't suffered wow. physical abuse and uh, suicide attempts so not just having thought of suicide but suicide attempts and so i she asked like why do you think you didn't fall into that category right like why wasn't that you and I also like thanks to my parents think that it came back to this it reminded me of the the sense of meaning because for me I didn't look at it as um I, I wasn't uh, I still am not mad at my rapist or at the the other like the other side of this right like I always looked at it as okay so this happened 
and I want to serve the world in a way that it happens to fewer people or that folks have the tools so that it's not happening. And what does that look like, right? And, and for me, that has been my sense of meaning. My why is to give folks the tools to navigate whatever comes their way in life because we, as you said, we do not get to control that. We yeah, only get yeah. to control ourselves. Absolutely. Um, so as you, but from a parent perspective, a couple of things that came to mind as you were chatting, one is um, that at least for me personally, sometimes... I'm not ready to process an emotion because in that sense of space, like sometimes it feels like the space is too big and it would be too consuming to try and process or to really let myself feel in that moment. But if I can kind of move through it and temporarily cope, I can usually get to a space that then, all right, now that space is smaller. And if I feel it, it won't be so consuming. And now I can work to process it. How have you kind of like navigated that in the face of? of immense trauma. Like, were there times where you were like, you know what? I can't feel this right now because it's too big to feel. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're gonna talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Yes, but I have to go back. <laughs> because Please, no, keep going back, there's, sister. <laughs> there's a few things that I think are important to recognize. When you were talking about choosing not to have anger and not to focus on hate or anger or revenge or any of those feelings, I think it's important to recognize that that doesn't mean that people aren't going to experience hate and anger and frustration and rage. And that's okay. That's very much okay. And it will still not change that what is, is, right? What is, is. 
And so when we can get ourselves out of the space of the what ifs and if only and how come and why me, and instead say, okay, it is what is. So ultimately, we may never have answers to questions like why me? And we may never have answers to questions like, like what's the purpose of this? Or why did this happen? Or we, we may never be able to answer those questions. And that can make us a little bit crazy if we stay in that space because there will never be resolution there. But if we can instead step into that space where we say, this is what is, then we're in a power position and we have the capacity to move forward. Now, that doesn't mean, again, you're not going to experience the anger and the frustration and the fear and the, all of those things are fine and need to be processed, but we simultaneously need to recognize that our reality is our reality and that it's unfortunate, but that we're the only ones that have any power over what happens next. And I think that in terms of meaning, given that we're not necessarily ever going to have a clearly defined reason things happened, we can assign that why for ourselves, which is what you did. You assigned the why. You said, you know, I'm going to choose to have this change the way that I show up in the world. And I'm going to very specifically work on these specific things to make a difference in this specific way. And you gave yourself meaning. You gave yourself a why. And I think that that's something that a lot of us can do um, that can give us a little bit of momentum towards positive change and towards a greater sense of power and capacity to actually step away enough to heal. So then from there, circling back to your question about how and when do you process? Because these feelings can be so big and these issues can be so deep and so real. And yet you still have little people who are constantly around and who are constantly watching and who may be mirroring and you want to show up for them in the best way that you possibly can. And these are real complexities as it relates to, to being a parent. That said, the first thing that's really important to recognize is that it is 100% okay for your children to see your humanity. It is 100% okay for your children to know that this really hard thing happened to you and that you're working through it. Because at some point in their lives, a really hard thing is going to happen to them. Now, does that mean that you need to go into great detail and say, well, you know, this, this is exactly what happened? No. Absolutely not. I don't think that it would serve your children to know that their mother was raped, specifically not at this stage in their lives when they're quite young. At some point, that could be a conversation that's had. But for many of us, whether it's that kind of trauma or another kind of trauma, the children don't necessarily need to know the specifics, but it's perfectly appropriate to say, you know, this is what's going on with mom right now. And sometimes when I have really big feelings, I need to just have a cry. And, or I need to, to take a little break, or do you ever feel that way? And you can turn that, that reality, that truth into an opportunity to teach and guide at an age appropriate level. So I don't know that the best solution is, um, is avoidance or quote unquote coping until you have the opportunity to fully process. I think that some things we have to just allow to come up when they come up and to see what unfolds from there. And it's okay because the greatest gift we can give our children is healthy modeling. Now that said, there will certainly be times where we do have to pull it together and function in the world. And that can be challenging. And at those times, I think it's important to say, I'm not compressing these things. I'm not avoiding them. I am simply showing up in this moment within the parameters that are required by this moment. And this is what's required of me. And then looping back to then look at those the, at the, of the, those big emotions and doing that processing later. That's one of the reasons that I am such a proponent um, for people either being involved in a support group if they're going through real trauma 
or and or having a therapist or a life coach or someone with whom they can process because then the capacity to loop back is so significantly increased because you have a scheduled time to actually do that. And I think that that can be, um, that can be the real, the real, um, difference between someone actually doing the work and someone falling into the pattern of perpetual avoidance. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that when we fall into the like perpetual avoidance pattern, we'll often turn to coping mechanisms instead of coping strategies, right? So coping mechanisms being the like unhealthy things that we do to cope versus tapping into coping strategies like therapy. But I've definitely been, I just taught infant toddler and researched these tiny human brains for a little while. And I've been in the classroom where we've been like triggered by something and been like, okay, I don't, I have to put three kids down for nap right now. Like I I don't have time to sit and like go through this. Let me schedule a therapy appointment, right? Like I, (laughs) and, and I think that it's, but I agree that I think it's healthier to process because if we don't, what often will end up happening is that we'll, we will, our kids will still see it and they will feel it and they'll see it and feel it potentially in, um, in a way that they might feel like it's on them, that it's their responsibility or that they cause something. And the last thing I want for tiny humans or for any human is to feel responsible for anybody else's feelings. Absolutely. So I think we can definitely show our humanity and let our tiny humans know that we have feelings without being like, and this is because you did this exactly. thing that frustrated yeah. me. And now I'm mad at you. Yeah. Like you didn't cause yeah. this. <laughs> no, and taking, this. taking responsibility for everything you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, one of the things that my mom often um, said, and it, at the time it just drove me crazy, but now it's maybe one of the greatest lessons she gave me. If I would get mad, I might say to her, you make me so mad. Hmm. And she would say, well, who makes Natalie mad when Natalie's mad? Um, and I would have to, you know, take responsibility and say, oh, I do. But you, you know, I felt like she was making me mad or he was making me feel whatever it was. And for her, even though it was frustrating and it was, it was hard for me, for her to turn that back around and help me learn to take personal responsibility, but simultaneously to help me process and say, you know what, I can understand how this situation might cause you to feel what you're feeling. However, you're still in charge of those feelings. They belong to you. And of course, all of this has to be done in ways that are age appropriate. Absolutely. But for us as adults, recognizing that the only one in charge of how we feel is ultimately us. And just again and again, I will always go back to the modeling. I think that above and beyond anything else, the way that we will raise emotionally intelligent and emotionally competent and emotionally fluent children is by being emotionally well ourselves and being self-aware and doing this work on our own. That matters more than any quote unquote strategy we might have to, to, to educate our children. No, I absolutely agree. And I think it's, it's a tough realization because we want to think that, so I run these groups called Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, and I do them in a series as well, where we'll meet uh, once a month for a few months. And after at the first month, the homework is always about yourself, right? It's about like yeah. paying attention to your triggers and, and learning uh, what you're feeling and how you're responding so that we can create a different narrative and so that we can change that. But every single time that that's the homework, everyone's like, 
wait, what? Like, it's my kid yes. that is doing yes. the thing or throwing well, the I wouldn't feel this way if they didn't, or <laughs> I wouldn't be experiencing this if my yes. husband didn't, right? Mm-hmm. And we feel yeah. like that, which is great. And it may be true, but what does it serve you? Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, truly, like it could be that my husband comes in every night and riles the kids up before bedtime. And that makes me so mad. And that reality may be absolutely real, but what good is my anger doing? What good is me focusing on his behavior doing? Because me focusing on his behavior gives me zero power, right? Me focusing on my behavior gives me all the power, right? Yeah, absolutely. So instead of getting mad, I can handle things differently. And I have, I have my, my wherewithal to actually right. manage the situation and find a solution rather than to get swept away by the, in the current of the problem. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that, yeah, you're right. That's our key is being able to come out of the amygdala and into the prefrontal cortex so that we can Absolutely. have those conversations. So yes. what are, what are some practices that keep you kind of moving forward and, and bringing emotional intelligence to the table? That is such a broad question for me because my life is dedicated to this kind of work. But if I had to say like gun to my head, one thing, what's the thing? I would 100% immediately say mindfulness. Any work that I have done to slow down and to, I don't want to say let go, but to without judgment, just allow myself to be Um, any work towards that end has significantly blessed my life. And there's many reasons, but the primary reason I think is that it slows your, in general, this kind of work has slowed down the process from trigger to response for me so significantly that I'm able to see the gap between the two and be more mindful about response, right? And so if anyone was sitting here saying, where do I start? You know, what first I would say, begin a mindfulness practice. And a lot of people hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, that's (laughs) horrible. I don't want to sit and meditate. I'm not a hippie or who has time for that? But it can be as simple as taking one deep breath and feeling the air enter your nostrils and focusing all of your attention on that breath as it passes by your nose, because that centers us that allows our brain that is constantly contracted and thinking and and resolving and to just have one second to decompress. And that alone can bless us. But imagine if we did three deep breaths or imagine if we did 10, right? And just finding ways to incorporate mindfulness. It doesn't have to be a ritualistic thing that you do, but finding ways to incorporate it into the flow of your daily life and to teach your children the same. Yeah, the power of the pause is so huge. And I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't throw at you beforehand and that I'm just going to, I'm going to go there because I'm curious about your thoughts on this. The, the topic of anxiety is one that I find pretty fascinating. I have had therapists say, like labels my feelings at times as anxious, which for me, like as I've now dove into emotional development research, is really like getting stuck in fear, right? That's that's Mm. what anxiety is, is when you're having fear and you're stuck in that feeling. And so I, I walked in, I got a new therapist, this is down the road, and I walked in and I was like, So I want to learn how to rewrite the narrative in my brain around fear. And she was like, excuse me, what? (laughs) I was like, yeah, this is something I don't want to accept. I think it's great that we are learning our triggers and we are now 
um, talking about anxiety more and we're able to identify it and, and be able to validate it. But then what? I didn't like the idea that I would just have to live with anxiety because I had had something traumatic happen that like, I, I, I understood it was my brain's job to try and keep me safe. Right. So right down to the jeans I was wearing, they were button up instead of zipper. And so for a decade, I didn't wear button up jeans. And, but in actuality, the jeans had nothing to do with why I was raped. And so, and in a logical brain, I knew that. And so I wanted to work on rewriting this narrative in my brain and to be able to train it to say like, oh, actually you're not in danger in all basements. It was just that one basement and it really had nothing to do with the basement, right? So like to be able to rewrite this narrative in my head. Yeah. And as someone who has navigated so much trauma, how, and, and I've, I've, one thing I've been in awe of in your parenting and that I love is that at least from the social media perspective, you let your kids be free and you don't seem to be parenting them with fear even after trauma and loss. And I think that that can be something that's very hard to do if we're living in fear of another child getting hurt or, or passing away or whatever that trauma may be. If we're living in fear of that, it's hard to not bring that to our parenting. So I would love to hear from you on this. Um, well that again, it's just so broad and there's so many pieces to that puzzle. Let me first answer your question and then we will loop back to the anxiety and and, um, that stuck in fear. So one of the very first things that my husband and I decided, um, and this just goes to, um, this speaks to our intentionality as we process these things, specifically after my son died, we really got clear. We sat and we got very clear about how we were going to move through this in healthy ways. And we set parameters. We had that luxury because my son was in the hospital for, for quite a period before he passed away. And during those last, that last day or so, when we realized that, that things were taking a turn um, for the worst, we were able to have some processing opportunity and the ability to get slow and to look at things and say, okay, if this happens, how do we respond rather than just having it happen and then trying to respond. And I think that that blessed us a lot, but in that process, there were certain things that we decided on one of which being that we wouldn't live in fear. And so that in and of itself was very significant part of that process that I can't, um, that I can't just skip over because it really did make such a difference. But I also think that a recognition of my powerlessness has been so profoundly powerful for me. Um, And I don't know that I would have been able to recognize it in that way after one trauma or even two. But at this point, with the many different things that have happened, I've had to step in and recognize that ultimately... I can protect my kids from some things very easily, right? Like I'm not going to let them run in the middle of the road. I'm not going to let them um, drink poison, <laughs> right? Like there are some things that like logically I am, I am going to be able to prevent and control. But the big things that most of us are so afraid of, we are sincerely powerless over. And so we give ourselves a lot of anxiety and pain and unnecessary internal conflict and and an unnecessary limiting of our children in their ability to explore and to grow and to be in the world because we're trying to exert power over things that, first of all, we don't even know for sure exist or are within the periphery of our lives. And second of all, even if they did or do, 
we are powerless over them, right? And I, having been through as many things as we have, I'm, I'm increasingly aware that when I hold on to things too tightly, it doesn't prevent anything from, from happening. It just offers my family the wonderful gift of having a very high level of stress and anxiety in all the moments leading up to the hard thing that would have still happened either way, right? And I know that that's really hard for people to wrap their brains around because we think that we, and it's a very Western way of thinking and being, I will say, um, through my research and through extensive travel um, and doing work with clients all over the world, this this tight hold and this ego-based desire to control all things and to be all all powerful man who can control all things that's a very western way of approaching our existence and it creates a lot of anxiety and stress for us because we think that if we did better and if we could do more and if we could do differently that we could then affect things in some way and make them different or better but the reality is that that's not the reality in in most situations um, and so for, for me, a huge part is just that constant reminder that I am powerless and that what I want, my value is for my children to grow and to experience and to become who they have the capacity to become. And that if I put too many restrictions on that, they will not be able to fulfill that great value of mine and of theirs, hopefully, which is to grow and to become and to learn and to explore. And, um, so a lot of it is mental work, honestly, just reminding myself always, what do you value? And are your actions aligned with those values? And I value not living in fear. And I value giving my children the opportunity to explore and become who they have the capacity to become. And if my actions are ever outside of alignment with those values, then it's mental work to realign them and say, okay, I'm letting fear win. Let me take a deep breath and exhale, exhale that away and recognize my powerlessness and say a little prayer and send them off into the world to, to become who they have the capacity to become without being tethered to their mom's worries and fears. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I think that that's huge. As you were saying that, I remembered the therapist that I ended up going to and doing this work around fear on, with, she at one point said, what are you afraid of? And I was like, well, getting raped again. And she was like, you might, that yeah. might happen. Yeah. And yeah you could do all the things in the world and that might still happen. You didn't do anything to make that happen that night yeah. in the same way that you can't do anything from preventing it from happening again, but you know, you can survive it. Yes. And, and that's, that's one of the hardest. So powerful. Things. Yeah. It's so powerful. And it's so infuriating because <laughs> I remember having a similar thought when, when we had our adoption fail um, just thinking, first of all, I cannot do this again. Like I cannot lose a child again. And here I was about to lose three and they were every bit a part of my heart and my home as any of my biological children were. And here we were on the precipice of this real trauma. And I was just thinking, there's no way, there's no way I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. And then having that recognition that I would absolutely survive because I'd proven to myself that I had that capacity. And feeling empowered, but also just feeling so angry that I had the capacity. And then of course, looping back around to the space where I chose to frame it as empowerment and frame it as um, a beautiful gift that I'd been given what I'd been given in the past because it then informed my capacity to manage this next thing. 
And I think that that's one of the things perhaps about my story that um, is unique, but also is perhaps a real gift now in retrospect is that because of the way that we handled those early losses and because of the choices that we made surrounding our emotional health and valuing our relationships and prioritizing healing, um, I think each one informs the next, right? Each loss informs the next. And I hate to say that, but the reality is that it, it was significantly less traumatic for me um, to have my son get hit by a car in terms of immediate trauma and fear. And because I had trained my brain to respond to trauma in a different way, it was still really hard and it was still horrifying. And the physiological response was different because physiologically in the past when I'd experienced trauma, I mean, you like racing heart and feeling like you're going to throw up and, 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 and that anxiety is just crushing and that fear. And that wasn't present for me. I was still worried and, and afraid and I was very focused, but, um, I had new tools and I think that choosing to embrace those new tools rather than feeling sorry for myself or wishing things were different was, was a huge, phenomenally important part of that process and, and surviving those things. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. One word I keep hearing you say is choice or choosing. And I think it's an important one to be mindful of because 
there isn't a sp- nobody's going to come do this for us and yeah. no one's going to come build this toolbox for us and yeah. every day it has to be a choice right yeah. that like you're going to tap into mindfulness so that you can be the best version of yourself or you're going to go to the bathroom for one minute and breathe yeah. so that you don't yell back at your child. Yeah, <laughs> Everybody's been there, right? Where you, you want to yell. hundred oh, uh, percent. And, and everybody's been there too, where they have yelled, mm-hmm. right? Because we're humans and we're just doing the best we can. And at the end of the day, I think a real question to ask ourselves, rather than getting all swept away by the complexity of how, 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 at the end of the day, just to say, did I give my best? Was this my best? And if you can answer with an integrity and say, yes, this absolutely, absolutely was my best, then wonderful. And if for whatever reason, you know that it wasn't your best, that you didn't give your all, then you move into evaluation and you say, okay, well, why not? And then we look at those specific things and realize, realize okay, tomorrow, this is going to be the focus is to manage this specific trigger or this specific programmed response or limiting thought pattern or whatever it is. I'm going to manage that. And that's where you begin rather than looking at this whole checklist of a gazillion things and ways saying what's currently a pitfall or a, what is that? What am I, what's the word I'm looking for? I think I will give you a pitfall. All right. I don't think it's like the perfect, the perfect way to use that, but we would say, um, but what, what is currently the, the obstacle, mm-hmm. right. And starting there because it gives us, um, a, some framework. But then what you were saying about choice, that that's everything ultimately, because we will never have power over what happens to us, but we will always 100% forever and ever have power over how we choose to respond. And that's just the truth, period. It's not a truth. It is the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of times people in general have a tendency towards really getting caught up in how things aren't fair, or it's, it's so much it's so much harder for them than others. And that may actually be true. Genuinely, it may actually be true that you've been dealt a harder hand than someone else. And it is still the hand you've been dealt. It changes nothing. You can feel that and you can process all that and you can have all the emotions surrounding that you want. And still it is what is. And so how will you choose to respond? And you can choose to respond by staying stuck in anger and frustration and overwhelm and feelings of, of how unfair and unjust the world is, or you can choose to change your behavior and to have a different way of thinking and being. And the choice is up to you. I mean, truly, no one's going to step into your life and say, you have to do it this way. You are 100% allowed to hold on to whatever it is you're holding on to. And maybe we could be open to the possibility that a change in our thinking or our behavior could, in fact, change the pain point in our life or in our relationship with our children or in our relationship with our spouse, et cetera, et cetera. I a thousand percent agree. And it's been interesting for me in like specifically in like tiny humans, big emotions to see there are a number of people who come to the table and, and leave and don't put it into practice. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, but nobody else will right? Like you, it's on, you you can't just read a book and then it'll change or, or come to tiny as big emotions and it'll change. Like you have to do something. You, you have to have a response to whatever it is you're taking in. That's actually going to change. Nobody's going to do that for you. And I, I think you brought up an interesting point about privilege. It's something we've discussed a lot because I think it's a tough thing to wrap our heads around because nobody feels like their life is easy. 
And so it's hard, I think, to imagine that you have privilege that somebody else doesn't have because your life doesn't feel easy. But the truth is that your life might not be easy, but there are ways that it might be easier for you than it is for other folks. I think there's always somebody who has it harder, right? And yeah. and if we really pause and look around, you'll see that. And we'll also see folks who have overcome immense obstacles in the face of everything that could have shut them down, right? Like, and instead they overcame it because they chose to. And that for me is so, so stinking powerful. And I hope that it, it, and I think all of that comes back to emotional intelligence. I think you cannot do that without emotional intelligence, without the self-awareness to say, here's what I'm feeling and here's how I'm going to process it so that I can show up in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And then the question that I have for you, or maybe just for your listeners in general, is then how, right? Because like you were saying, you go and you teach these things and some people implement them and some don't. And so we look at it and we say, okay, well, what's the differentiator, right? Why are some of us able to then put these things into practice and why are some of us not? And what I hope to have happen at the end of this episode is for people to be on the side of having the capacity to put these things into practice. And so I think that we need to look for a minute about why sometimes that's hard. And I do think that a lot of it is exhaustion. I mean, I mean, truly, it is so hard to be a parent of little people. It is so exhausting and it is so relentless. And a lot of us have a lot of other things that we're doing in addition to that, that make it incredibly challenging. And for those of us who aren't doing anything in addition to that, that's incredibly challenging too, because you are so entrenched in that world at all times that there is a madness that comes from that. And so there's really not a situation of parenting young children that is not going to be incredibly exhausting and intense. There just isn't a version of that. And I think that that recognition can really help people be tender with themselves. Because I think one of the reasons that people don't put things into practice is because it feels like one more thing in a world where there's already so much. Mm -hmm. That's one reason. Another thing may be that they just simply don't know how. Another thing may be that they, I'm always going to, with people with little kids, I'm always going to go back to the bandwidth thing. I just don't have the bandwidth for it because I think that's how I felt. Um, But what other things do you see? What do you think is happening? Why is it that people aren't able to implement these things and make those choices? I think it's information overload, right? So I think people are taking in so much all the time. And now, I mean, you can Google one parenting question and get a billion different responses. And so I think it's hard to know, like, not like what is fake news? Like what is quality and what actually matters, right? Like we know that these tiny human brains were forming 90% of a human's brain by the time you're five and that most of your social programming happens before you're seven. And so we know that this is so important. And I think there's been an increased awareness about this. But in that, I think there's been a spike in this anxiety of like, okay, what am I doing to make sure I'm doing this correctly? And there are so many different approaches and answers out there that I think it's hard for people to be like, okay, this is the one that is do it. And so even though they come to Tiny Humans Big Emotions and they're like, yeah, I want this, I want these answers, 
I think sometimes it's still hard and and they're walking away with like concrete here, take this one step or take this one step and put it into your, in your toolbox. I think it's still hard to be like, well, A, I think it's really hard to override social programming. Like it, it takes a lot of work and intention and coming back to that bandwidth piece, like Some people just don't have the bandwidth to do it right now. And I think that, I think that there is so much shame and guilt that I think parents need to work through first that Mm. coming back to like, it is okay to say, Hey, I need to set up part-time childcare. I'm a stay-at-home parent. I don't have another job and I need to set up part-time childcare or whatever, like just get ridding of the shame and the guilt to whatever it is to make you the best person or parent, I think has to come first. Yes. Again, there's so many things that I want to touch on there. Number one, that information overload, a confused mind always says no. When there's so much coming at us and our mind gets confused, we don't know where to begin. And so it's it's paralysis by analysis, essentially, right? We can't make a choice about, about what to do. And then also the guilt and shame that you mentioned, we get to this point where it's like, we're so worried and we're so analytical about it all. And we're so um, hard on ourselves for the ways in which we haven't shown up perfectly that, again, we freeze. And we don't know what to do next because we're so afraid of doing the wrong thing. Or again, the bandwidth is so real and we have to, to dive in and do more work. And it's like, how can I do more work? Are you kidding me? Like I can, I can barely make it to 6 p.m. when my husband or my wife comes home or my partner comes home and then I'm able to lay down on the couch and watch Netflix for three hours until I fall asleep or, you know, and, and I understand that because I've been there and the problem still needs to be solved. And so what I would recommend to people is giving themselves a lot of compassion and recognizing that this is the first time they're doing what they're doing. And while yes, we may have a a large amount of privilege, we are still experiencing a very specific thing. We're still doing it for the first time. We still only have the resources that we have. It's very unique to us. And we have to have compassion that it's hard to do a new thing and it's hard to figure all of this out. But the second thing that I think is so important for people to recognize is that just because we're coming from a space of potentially of privilege, it doesn't mean it's not still a hard thing. Right. And that's okay. It's okay. Just because someone else has it harder doesn't mean that it's still not hard. Totally. And so we're not beating ourselves up for being like, Oh my gosh, this is so hard. Third and perhaps most important is what would happen if instead of looking for a solution, we looked for a value. And this is what a lot of the work that I do with my clients comes back to. And the work I do with my kids too, is instead of saying, how do we solve this problem? We say, what's the value that I have that makes this a problem in the first place? So maybe we value having family dinner every night. Maybe that's a thing we value and we're not doing it. And the house is a mess. And we're just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm such a failure because this thing isn't happening. If we go back to the value and we say, okay, I value having family dinner. And then we say, okay, but wait a minute, let's go a step further than that. What is the actual value? Why do I value family dinner? And then we say, well, because I value having this, this touch point where we all come together once a day and we just are. And that's what I value. I value that opportunity for us all to touch base and to be together without distraction. And then you give yourself grace and you say, dude, this is hard. 
And I am not going to cook freaking dinner every night. And that's just the reality of this window. And that is okay. But if the value is actually the touch point, then I'm going to get takeout and we're going to sit on the grass on a blanket and we're going to touch base or we're going to eat cereal for dinner. And then we're going to all go outside and lay on a blanket together and look at the stars because the value isn't the food. The value is the coming together. And getting out of the problem and out of the, the perfection solution and instead focusing on the underlying value, because that will actually inform your capacity to solve the quote unquote problem, because that is the reason the problem exists, because there's an imbalance as it relates to the value. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. I love it so much. I want to like scream it and put it on every <laughs> billboard. That's amazing, Natalie. And I, I think it's so, so true. And I think that a lot of us aren't necessarily clear on what our values are. And it's easy to like pull from what we think they're supposed to be. Yeah. And yeah. getting clear on what they really are could go yeah. a long way. If yeah. you... And there's no supposed to. That's the thing. We get so right. stuck up in that, but there genuinely isn't a supposed to. And so if you're looking for a supposed to, you're like in a fantasy world because that's not a real thing. Those values that you think you don't know they really, you know, they exist internally on the deepest level. And that's why the self-awareness matters so much because you're quieting the mind in these mindfulness practices and giving space for these values to rise to the surface and for your brain to be able to have the wherewithal to wrap around them and then to reframe ways that are reliable and accessible for you at this phase in your life to implement these, these things in ways that serve your particular family. And it will look different from one home to the next. But I want to loop back to one more thing that you said just very quickly. Yeah. You talked about um, being willing to hire help. Mm. I, I have very strong feelings about this because we are one of the only groups of people that in the world that doesn't have domestic help as a normal part of our societal norm or our, our idea about what happens at home, whether it's intergenerational families living together and everyone's helping out or whether it's hiring someone or there's, we are one of the only uh, groups of people that tries to do it all on, on their own. So just keep that in mind, please. <laughs> and remember that if you don't have the resources to get outside help, you do have one fantastic resource, which is that of resourcefulness and being resourceful and able to say to your neighbor, like, Hey, when a kid stop once a week, so we can each have a day off to XYZ or finding those opportunities that aren't tied to your monetary resources and finding ways to implement them because every single one of us has that resourcefulness and is able, is able to utilize it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I grew up in a poor farm community and my mom utilized the crock pot, right? Like we didn't have healthy meals all the time, but she didn't have to come home and cook dinner even though she wanted us to all eat dinner together, right? Like it was all ready to go in a crock pot. And so just like, I, I totally agree. I think that, and, and I think this applies not just to like parenting, but also existing in partnership and just like in in community. If, if this isn't working and you feel out of balance, yeah, looking at what it really is, right? Like I've been through periods, of course, with Zach uh, along those lines as well, where we're like, this, things aren't right. And this isn't what's out of balance. What is it? And how do we bring in other things or tweak things, whether it was like doing hello fresh or whatever it was mm -hmm. so that 
we could get back to a balance. And, and I love the focus on values though, because I think that's huge. And I think that the, the like shoulds that I was thinking about is when we, I think it's very easy, especially with social media to scroll through and see what we think we should look like. Um, whether it's uh, going to the fall festival this weekend, or if you didn't go buy a pumpkin and carve a pumpkin with your kids, it does not matter, right? Like if that doesn't align with your value system, just because eight thousand other people did it, it doesn't matter that you didn't do it. And that like letting that be okay. Yeah. You know, along those lines, I, I think it's important for people to recognize that you know, I, my kids are older now. My youngest is just turned 12 in August and I have a 13 year old and a 15 year old. And my little guy who passed away would be turning either eight or nine tomorrow, actually. Mm. And, um, there were many years where I was dealing with acute trauma or the after effects of acute trauma. And I was very compromised because of that, obviously, my bandwidth was significantly lower because I was still dealing with raising all these little people and simultaneously managing my grief and, and, and working to help them manage their grief. And it was a lot. And so I had to, I had no option, but to let go of a lot of things. And specifically as it related to any kind of comparison or any kind of should quote unquote, and just say, look, this is an anomaly. My life is not what everyone else's life is. And so I got to cut myself some slack. And I think that the same is true on one level or, or another for all of us to say like, my life is not that. And that's okay. Right? Like there were times when we didn't carve pumpkins. There was one, I mean, we have every single mom fail quote unquote, that, that you can think of has happened in this home over the years. Absolutely. And what I've never failed at is being present and available and giving unconditional love. And I've never failed at getting back up again, not ever. And that matters a hell of a lot more than carving a pumpkin. And that's what I hope people can remember. Oh, I so, so totally agree that if we can give our kids one gift in the whole wide world, it's nothing that you can buy. This is 70% the connection and emotional intelligence to thrive. Yeah. Natalie, I think you're amazing. And I'm sorry. I think you're amazing. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world. It makes a real difference. Yeah. Thank you as well. I'm glad to be on this journey walking alongside you, sister. Amen. Where can people connect with you? Um, right now, the best place for us to connect is Instagram. It's at Natalie Norton, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-N-O-R-T-O-N. And then coming very soon, um, I'll be launching a podcast. And I'm just excited to be able to continue to spread the message of light and love and self-empowerment and just join join the good fight. I cannot wait for your podcast. I'm already stoked and can't wait to be a subscriber. Um, Thank you. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely share about it once uh, once you're up and running and live. But we'll link to all, link to your Instagram and all that jazz on the blog post. Natalie, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, 
search seed and sow colon voices of your village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're gonna talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.